2: John Copenhaver, and Al Warren Heard
1: on KCAA, 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 105.0 AM Palm Springs.
0: We are back, and thank you for coming into the House of Mystery. Tonight, we have David DeCook. Um, I want to thank you for being here.
2: Yeah, thank you for uh, for having me on. It's, uh, it's I'm sure it's going to be great.
0: Oh, always is. <laughs> yeah. uh,
2: so
0: so now you haven't been on uh, the show before, so um, I have not. Yeah, no. So so let's tell us a little bit about you, uh, where you got your start, and how you got into um, writing.
2: Well, I uh, I grew up in uh, Holland, Michigan, uh, and uh, I I went to Hope College there, which and majored in political science, but. I always really wanted to be a journalist. They didn't have a journalism program at Hope College, so I, I got my training working on the college newspaper, and then after I graduated, I uh, uh, got a job at a small newspaper in Pennsylvania called The News Item, and I uh, did reporting on many different types of, of stories there, but in particular, the one that really stuck with me was uh, on the Centralia Mine Fire, which was a an underground... Uh, fire that had destroyed or was in the process of destroying this little town uh, called Centralia. And uh, I wrote a a lot of stories about that for the paper uh, and then uh, wrote my first book, uh, Unseen Danger, about that. And then um, a number of years later, I I updated the book, and it's now called Fire Underground. It's kind of a comprehensive history of that. And then I worked for uh, the Harrisburg Patriot News uh, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the state capital. Uh, and it was uh, when I was coming to the end of my my time there in 2008 that I I decided I I, I wanted to do a story about the Betsy Arzma case, uh, and uh, and so I because it it had become it was getting more and more attention you know from from various citizen you know investigators uh, that's kind of what I call them but uh, they they were looking into the case because the state police in Pennsylvania had basically not done anything on it for years uh this this unsolved murder and uh and so that was how i got into you know writing what became uh the book murder in the stacks and uh that's kind of it
0: yeah did you did you sort of so you had an infinity you're sort of into um true crime and that sort of thing as a hobby more than anything
2: well actually uh no i mean i had read you know books now now and then uh you know, uh, on, on true crime. You know, let's say, uh, you know, Truman Capote's *In Cold Blood*. But, but I can't really say that I, I was, uh, I had really w- was a devotee of it. Uh, and now I realize that I really like, you know, writing about this. Uh, but, but back then it was kind of a kind of a new thing that grew out of my, uh, my abilities as an investigative reporter, which you know could be investigating you know just about anything, you know, from environmental you know, disasters and crimes to, uh, you know, utility fraud or, or anything like that. And uh, so it was kind of a natural outgrowth of, of my investigative reporting uh, for the Harrisburg paper.
0: Right. And so so what, what made you lock on to this story in particular?
2: Well, Betsy Arzma was from my hometown of Holland, Michigan. Uh, and uh, she was uh, six years older than me. Uh, we went to the same high school, uh, but because of the age difference, uh, we didn't know each other. Although you know we had teachers in common and and you know my younger sister is a friend of her younger sister you know that sort of thing uh but i distinctly remember you know back in uh thanksgiving weekend of, of 1969 you know seeing the, the holland evening sentinel the paper and on the top of page one there was uh you know a story about uh this girl named betsy Arsma, was very pretty being murdered in a uh, tea library at penn state and uh and i i stayed with the story and never really forgot about it uh but it wasn't really again until you know i was well into my career that i actually had a chance uh, to write about it but yeah that was it was the hometown hometown connection that got me into it right
0: and so now that now the hometown was quite small wasn't it
2: well yeah it was well 25,000 i guess you could still call that that small uh, but it was it was a, a small town kind of in the the best sense of the word it was very it was very Dutch, you know, Dutch American. Uh, it had been settled by Dutch religious dissidents uh, beginning in 1848, and uh, and it was uh, it was right along Lake Michigan. It was a very pretty, well kept town, uh, but very much of a monoculture, you know, and, and lots of blonde people.
0: <laughs> so now, now in the town itself, so it was a fairly. Uh, fairly clean nice town and everything so there wasn't a lot of murders or things going on there either
2: there were not a lot of murders uh those that did occur tended to be uh outsiders you know people you know people kind of on the fringes of the community the only one that wasn't uh was a a, in the uh, the early 60s when uh this local boy uh Murdered two two young girls who were out walking in the sand dunes along Lake Michigan and picking flowers. Uh, he claimed he he shot them accidentally, but could never explain how uh, he shot them accidentally eleven times. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and and then he uh, he tried to flee uh, by hitchhiking. He he went up to the top of uh, the Lower Peninsula of Michigan and then you know, hitchhiked uh, into the Upper Peninsula and then all got all the way out to the badlands of South Dakota before a, a local uh, sheriff recognized him from, you know, a wanted uh, bulletin that had gone out and, and arrested him and took him back. And then he was uh, tried and convicted and, and uh, was in prison until he committed suicide. Oh, uh,
0: that must have been kind of shocking, you know.
2: It was, because it was, it was so out of character for the town. You know, uh, this was not a town where good people... Worried at all, you know, that they might be murdered by some crazy, you know, nutcase. Uh, it was just just a classic small town. I mean, yeah, there was crime, but it was controllable crime for the most part. This was really out of character.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. This was probably even the even the murder here of Betsy in '69. So now you were a few years younger than her, right? So you were yeah, still her, in her. school when it happened. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how how did it affect the the school and the
2: community? Well. From what her uh, one one source in particular, uh, who was friends with the family, uh, told me that uh, they were it was it was not like a warm embrace that they received. I mean, Holland is kind of a can be a very cold town, it's a very Calvinist town because of the, the majority religions, Protestant religions that are, are practiced there. And uh, uh, Betsy's younger sister told her friend that. Uh, you know, the, the, no teacher mentioned it to her. You know, uh, that friends didn't mention it to her. It was, it was almost considered like it was something shameful that had happened to her sister, and, and nobody talked about it.
0: Wow, I would think that this isn't that kind of unusual for 1969.
2: It, it is unusual, but but Holland is an unusual uh, place in that in that respect. I mean the. The Calvinist uh, religion, uh, actually it's called there's the Reformed Church and the Christian Reformed Church, and especially the Christian Reformed Church, was just very dure and austere. And, uh, and so, while, that, while what happened there may, you know, to her younger sister may seem almost shocking to us, it's not all that unusual there. I mean, they were just very different people.
0: Wow. Wow. So now, did, did that affect the crime as in uh the way that they um let's say policed it where they they investigated it
2: well the crime itself took place uh at at Penn State University in Pennsylvania uh not in in Holland Michigan uh, okay. yeah. but um the uh the Pennsylvania state police uh did send uh troopers out to Holland to uh find out what they could about about Betsy Arzma i mean they you know basically when police investigate a murder like this they one of their classic techniques is to look for some kind of moral flaw in the victim that will lead them to the person who committed the murder but in their case they couldn't find anything you know she was she was a good girl she was you know clean as a whistle really you know she was she was pretty she was you know graduated fourth in her class in high school and, and uh you know and they the ones that i talked to they they expressed frustration that that she made it so hard for them by being so good. Wow,
0: um, and, and what exactly? Okay, let's go over the murder a little bit. So, what, what were the kind of the uh, details of the murder?
2: She had gone to Petit Library uh, at Penn State uh, at around around four uh, thirty in the afternoon. Uh, her roommate went along with her, and then they uh, they split uh, at the uh, the front door of, of the library, uh, and Betsy then walked back to an adjoining uh, faculty office building to talk to one of her English professors. And then she went into the library to look for a particular book that uh, her professor uh, had wanted to see to uh, help grade a, a paper that she had written. And it was while she was in the stacks, uh, in the, the second level stacks of the library, that uh, she had... An encounter with someone—I believe it was uh, the killer, Richard Hafner—and uh, and she was stabbed once in the chest and uh, and died almost instantly.
0: Wow. So, no, was there a reason why he would do this to her that you
2: kind of became aware of? Well, they they knew each other. Uh, they had, they actually lived in the same dormitory. Uh, it was actually Penn State's first co-ed dorm that year in 1969 they were they were both graduate students and he he was obsessed with her uh they, they had gone out on very casual you know uh get togethers uh you know two or three times basically just for coffee or you know, things like that and then she figured out that he was a creep and and dumped her now she she had a boyfriend at this time but throughout her 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 teenage years she had always been very open to friendships with, with men, even if she was dating you know somebody else, you know and um, and so Haithner didn't like that, you know he uh and but he didn't do anything about it until you know november twenty eighth of nineteen sixty nine Now, how he found out uh she was in the library uh, that day is unclear. Uh, it may have been, uh, this fellow, uh, Larry Paul Maurer, who was in the same English class as Betsy and who also fancied Betsy. Uh, I sometimes wonder whether this was all a, a, a terrible prank that went horribly wrong. But, uh, anyway, she, he was down there, uh, reading his pornography and, uh, and she came along. There was some kind of a, of an encounter, a encounter, you know, really. And then seconds later, uh, three people who were within 10 or 20 feet uh, of, of where she was uh, standing in the, in the stacks heard the sound of books falling, you know, and one of them actually did hear a sound like a fist hitting a chest, but there was no scream, you know, no argument, anything like that. It all happened very quickly. Uh, and then, and then the man came running out of the stacks uh, and, and, almost immediately came upon uh, merrily Early and Joao Wafinda, uh, two of the three you know people, and he, he kind of stops and he says, somebody better help that girl, but it wasn't going to be him. He kept on going. Wow.
0: And so now how did this end up in trial? Like, So did it, they end up catching him, or did they just not even bother solving the crime?
2: No, I mean, they, they made every, every effort to solve the crime, but they were never successful, and... A big part of the reason for that was that people who knew or suspected that Hafner, you know, had something to do with the murder, stayed quiet. And notably, this was his, uh, his professor, uh, professor Lauren Wright, uh, professor Wright, uh, had been Hafner's, uh, thesis advisor in the geology department. And, uh, and he was at home, you know, in his home in state college, uh, you know, with his wife, uh, at the time, the murder took place, and then an hour afterward, Hafner shows up at his front door and is all out of breath and, and, and kind of agitated, and the first thing he says is, is there anything in the paper about that girl being killed in the library? And and Wright knew nothing about this. Uh, and he talked to Hafner for a while, and then, and then Hafner left. And, and Wright told me that he... He wondered about this, but he never said anything to anybody. Even at the time, even in the weeks to come, when there were as many as forty Pennsylvania State troopers on campus interviewing, you know, twenty-five hundred to three thousand students and faculty about this, and Lauren Wright never says anything about his student. And it wasn't until maybe seven years later that uh, Lauren Wright, who was feeling at that point threatened by Hafner, went to his uh, department chairman and poured out this story. Uh, The department chairman then went to the university general counsel and, and said, Hey, you know, you might have the killer of Betsy Yardsma here and nothing ever happened. Uh, The lead investigator for the Pennsylvania state police said that he had never heard anything about any of this. And I believe him. And uh, the, the state police were just really stymied. You know, they were, there were, there were a number of problems besides Lauren Wright. Uh, there was the whole issue of the 1960s, you know, the, the the student protests and everything like that. The Pennsylvania State Police were not seen as, as your friendly local policemen by many of the students on the Penn State campus. So there was a real reluctance for students to come forward with any tips that they might have. The police were pleading for tips, you know, they... They sent out letters to all the students, you know, please tell us, you know, and they got very little uh, in return, and, and eventually the investigation just kind of uh, petered out into a cold case. Hmm.
0: And so, now, did this Hefner uh, have, like, a, a, a good family or a strong following? Did he have a lot of friends, and was he popular? Was there, was there certain reasons why, uh, you know, like um, the uh, Lauren would not... Um, talk about it
2: my suspicion is you know and both of them are dead so I can I can say this but uh, my suspicion has always been that that Hafner uh, who was a gay pedophile uh, himself uh probably knew that Wright was also gay uh and 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 that Wright was at that in that day and age in the late 1960s Wright was probably very concerned about that being exposed and uh you know he was scared of Hafner, and uh, it was just a very strange relationship. I mean, Lauren Wright kept ties with Hafner to the very end of Hafner's life in 2002. You know, it was just the only thing you can think of. You know, when you see all this, is that Hafner had to have something on. Him, you know, and so, but again, on, on Hafner, uh, he was a, a pedophile and a very bad one. Uh, he had uh, he had escaped. Detection by or prosecution, I should say, up until 1975. Uh, there had been There were several incidents in the 1960s that I was able to identify. Uh, some involving Boy Scouts in the troop where he was an assistant scoutmaster. Others involving uh, you know kids, boys that he befriended, working as a essentially as a playground supervisor as a summer job in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, but for whatever reason nobody ever followed through on prosecution. There was a different attitude toward, uh, you know, pedophilia at that time. It was con- kind of almost considered more, more of an embarrassment than a crime that would soon change. But, uh, I did, I just really wonder, I look at this, you know, there was, there was a mother who got really upset. Hafner took two of her sons, uh, on a trip to ocean city, Maryland, uh, for a vacation, uh, at the end of, uh, the summer of 1965 molested both of them and she raised holy hell with uh hafner's uh supervisor in in uh the summer recreation program you know and but nobody ever seemingly went to the police you know it was it was not until 1975 that hafner was first arrested in lancaster for molesting two boys wow
0: how did it end for him then
2: well he got away with it he was and he was a I mean, in the book, I, I say that he was a monster, and nobody ever has really disagreed with me on that point. Especially, uh, you know, Officer Jerry Crump, Detective Jerry Crump, who came forward after the book was published to tell me more about that 1975 arrest. But But uh, you know, Hafner, uh, he was he was dangerous. He uh, he loved to sue people. He had discovered that it was really no great shakes to uh, you know fill out the paperwork for a civil lawsuit and and sue people for damages that did something he didn't like and uh he never had to win these cases but he could harass them by forcing them to hire lawyers and respond to these cases he kept the family of the boys that he molested in 1975 tied up in court for nearly 20 years you know with and i I really fault the the judiciary in lancaster county for not seeing what was right in front of going on right in front of them i mean they would lecture him sometimes and you know, it's basically say, don't file these, these silly lawsuits anymore, but they would never do anything serious to stop it.
0: Wow. So it just didn't, it just wasn't efficient. Um, I, so now when you were doing the research, how did you research? Did you have, uh, a lot of interviews or, uh, documents? Like how, how did you start and go through this? Like, um, <clears throat> big well, process?
2: Yeah, it was, uh. And this book, unlike some that I've done, was uh, mainly based on interviews. Uh, and the reason for that was that the, uh, the open records laws uh, in Pennsylvania are very weak when it comes to accessing uh, police records. Uh, even in cases 40 years old like this, And so, um, but fortunately I had access to, uh, Sergeant George Keebler, who was the lead investigator of the case for 14 years. And, uh, and many of the other, uh, state police officers who were involved in, in the case in one way or the other, you know, I talked to them, you know, I talked to, uh, many, many of Betsy's friends, uh, from high school and college, um, you know, and, and through all that. And then, um, uh, I was able, of course, to access the the spurious lawsuits that Pener filed uh, over the years and and they were able to uh, you know, tell me other things you know give me more more facts and, and figures uh, and um and through all that, I was able to put put this story uh together and uh, but it was really it was the interviews that were the most important uh, and other than Sergeant keebler my interviews with uh, Christopher Hafner, who was uh, Rick Hafner's cousin, were, were probably, was probably the most important. How, how,
0: how did they respond? So how did Hafner's uh, cousin respond? Were they kind of hostile? Were they open to it? Um, and, and even the sergeant in that. How was your overall feel when you were talking to people about the story?
2: Well, with Sergeant Keebler, uh, he had initially, when I was doing the newspaper articles that preceded the book uh, by a couple of years, um, he had declined to talk to me and uh, I was a little bit upset about it at the time, you know, but I, I, I had a story to write. So I I just kind of moved, moved past it. Now, it was funny after the, the stories appeared and I sent him copies just, you know, so he could see what, what I had written. I get a call one day, you know, this was maybe two weeks after the stories appeared and he said, well, you know, you did a real good job on that. And do you ever want to do anything more, you know, with this, I'll be happy to talk to you, and, and that's almost like his voice was. And 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 he said, and I said, so if I was going to write a book, you would talk to me. Yes, I would. And so, I interviewed him uh, six or seven times at length, uh, and uh, and he was uh, he was very forthcoming. There were there were a couple of things that he wouldn't talk to. He would, you know, even this, you know, forty years on, he would honor confidences that he had he had made you know, to people who were involved in some way in the investigation. And I can't criticize him, you know, for that. Um uh, and uh but generally he was he was very cooperative. Um and uh Christopher Hafner, uh he uh he was an interesting interesting person. He uh he had been molested by his cousin uh, at one point and uh <coughs> so he you know in one breath he would talk about what a monster his cousin was and then the other, in the next breath, he would talk about what a genius he was. You know, what a, you know, a, a fun guy to be around. You know, it was, it was, Aefner, Rick hafner was a a classic pedophile in, in the sense that he groomed his victims. And, and he, uh, he would, uh, I mean, he, he was, he, he would do fun things with these kids before the, the bill came due, so to speak. And, uh, so, you know, Chris was very, was very forthcoming, um, I do wonder now whether he he wishes he hadn't been. He's told me a couple of times that other members of his extended family uh you know were very angry with him for for speaking out uh uh and which is why I praise him in the book for his courage in, in coming forward yeah
0: were you ever able to talk to any of the family of the victim
2: mostly no um and the, the the immediate Arzma family uh, would not talk to me in any way shape or form. Uh, her brother was was quite hostile, you know, about it. You know, I had really thought, you know, that since I was a, a homeboy, so to speak, you know, I was from the same town, the same culture as them. I talked in the same way that they would feel comfortable talking to me, as all of her friends did. And uh, but no, you know, they would not not say a word the only uh the only members of the extended family that i was able to talk to uh was uh her sister's ex-husband uh, who was helpful in, in a, a, a couple of specific ways he was very helpful uh and then uh, one cousin uh who had uh who had known betsy very well and who had actually uh flown mr and mrs ardsmond you know down to chicago from holland when they they flew out to uh, state college to uh bring her body home Wow.
0: Uh, well, you know, it's how did and, and did you uh, how did the college itself or the University of Penn State um, feel like what was their thought on it? Like what were people talking about? in at the time or even after they, did they really understand what happened?
2: I mean, I mean, they understood, it, of course, in the sense that, you know, a co-ed had been murdered in the library, which was a, a shocking and horrifying event. Uh, to be sure, but uh, they also they also very definitely saw this as a major public relations problem, and uh, and their their response to the murder was was kind of a combination of of wanting it to be solved, but also wanting to limit you know the public relations downside you know to the college. Uh, the state troopers who were involved in the investigation uh, very much sensed that. Uh, you know, they would say, well, yeah, they were helpful on this, but not on that. And, uh, you know, so, and and I think tellingly, you can't find any of the documents that the college generated on its own regarding the investigation. Uh, you know, I went to the college archives, and there was a very one thin folder containing uh, mostly press releases and news clippings, you know, about the, uh, the ARSMA murder investigation. Uh, there should have been three feet of documents, and I'm not exaggerating on that. I mean, I, I've done archival research, you know, for a long, long time, and I know how institutions respond to events like this. You know, there should have been, you know, memos out the wazoo, you know, about, you know, about this and that, you know. I mean, you had 40 state troopers on campus, you know, for six weeks, interviewing 2,500 to 3,000, you know, students and faculty. I mean, there should have been... Just reports on hey, what's going on? You know, uh, what are they finding? What are what are they asking about? You know, none of that was there. You know, and and I asked where it was, and and just got blank stares. You know, it was uh, to me, it was it was fairly clear that at some point those documents had been segregated and put wherever. I I, I doubt if they were destroyed. I, I think they're probably, you know, in a, a secure location someplace.
0: Hmm. So so you figure that they actually did have the documents they just didn't oh
2: sure yeah i mean for, for example you know the, the the college president at the time was uh eric walker was i mean he wrote memos about everything memos to the file about everything he wrote memos about the weather he wrote mem- mem- memos about you know uh the sds picketing uh, navy recruiters on campus yet there was nothing in his file no memo to the file about anything regarding the Arsma case, uh, and he never, as far as we know, he never even sent condolences to the family. I mean, I looked; there were condolence letters to maybe a half dozen, you know, people, uh, you know, from outside the campus during the, the three months after the murder. Not to the Arizma family, you know, uh, who incidentally did did complain to a reporter, you know, perhaps 20 years after the crime, about how coldly they had been treated by the university. Wow,
0: not a good thing. Um, so now, how did you take um, in the writing of the book? So how did you kind of what direction did you take with the plot?
2: Well, I um, I always that I mean that's that's a complicated question because it's yeah. probably the most important decision that a writer writer makes is how to how to organize the book. And uh, I kind of uh, I decided that I had to to get right into uh, you know the murder itself. At first and and in the initial investigation, then I, I decided, well, let's talk some about Betsy's background, about her young life and, and how she ended up at, at Penn State. Then go back to the investigation and then go into, you know, to Rick Hafner. you know so that's how I ended up organizing it. right and, and, and that thought went into that, believe
0: me oh, okay, and, and so did did you did you find out any new information? Were you surprised by anything that you found out when you were doing this?
2: You mean in the research in general, or in organizing uh, the book? In the research itself. Well, certainly uh, one of the you know the big things that was was surprising was uh, the fact that you know the whole thing about how uh, Lauren Wright had shown up at uh, his dean's office, Charlie Hostler's, you know, and poured out this story. I mean, Hosler, you know, told me the story on a couple of occasions, and uh, you know, so there was there was that. Uh, and also the fact that Lauren Wright had uh, had told people about Hafner throughout his life, you know, and I was able to nail down a couple of specific incidents where he had he had told, you know, like former students, you know, like uh, Dan Stevens was one who uh, had run into Lauren Wright in the early 1990s at a, at a geology uh, conference in uh, Nevada, you know, and and, uh, and Dan Stevens. Uh, had had spent several months uh, with Lauren Wright and Rick Hafner out at their geology research station uh, in uh, near Shoshone, California, in Death Valley, and so he knew Rick Hafner, and so but he had heard nothing about the murder at that point, uh, or had or anything about Rick Hafner, you know, since that 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 fall that he has spent with him, and so he just he told me um, he asked Lauren Wright, well, hey, what's up with Rick Hafner? And he said this funny expression came over Lauren Wright's face, you know, and then he started pouring out the story about Hafner showing up at his house an hour after the murder and, and, and various other, uh, other things, you know, so that, that was certainly one of uh, the interesting things I found. Plus the fact that uh, that they had essentially maintained a, a relationship of sorts, you know, right up until Hafner died in 2002. Wow.
0: And so it never, this was never taken to, to trial. No one was ever convicted of nope. this. It just sort of, it's kind of just passed and done.
2: It, it did. You know, I mean, it, it was a cold case, and, and, and there was always a cold case officer, you know, assigned to it, but um, there was never any push. And, and one of the things I blame for that is the fact that uh, Betsy Arzma was from from Michigan and not from Pennsylvania. She had no family in Pennsylvania, you know, who could say, Hey, what the heck's going on? Why, why aren't you solving this case? And the Arzma family, for whatever reason, they just kind of went on with their lives. I mean, Sergeant Keebler said that he would once in a while, he would call them just to let, you know, maybe once a year, call them to, to let them know, you know, what had been going on with the investigation, but they never called him not even once. And, uh, You know, I sometimes wonder, and I have no proof of this, but I really wonder sometimes if Penn State reached a settlement with them early on with a confidentiality agreement. I mean, that would explain a whole lot of things. But again, that's just an educated guess on my part. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's always, it's it's really tough to find out something so long ago. Uh, It is, Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: So, uh, do you have an overall opinion about that? Is that's kind of how you've resolved it—that he he probably did do it, mur- did the murder, and they just. Well, told... I
2: believe I believe that he did uh, commit the murder. Uh, you know, he uh, he had obviously told uh, told his mother about it at some point. His mother was a real piece of work uh, too. Uh, and there was the incident in uh, 1975, the day after he had been arrested for molesting the two boys. He was out on bail, and. Uh, there have been a couple of uh, small articles in the Lancaster newspapers, you know, about his arrest, and his mother was furious. And and she saw him, you know, out in the the alleyway next to their house. Uh, there was an alleyway between the house and and this this big garage where he maintained his uh, what he called the rock shop, where he would make these uh, rock and mineral sample boxes that he sold to the Smithsonian. And and anyway, he's out there, and his mother comes storming out, you know, and and she says. You're doing this again. Why don't you just kill me the way you killed her? And uh, and uh, unbeknownst to either of them, Chris Hafner was behind behind the door and heard everything. You know, and uh, and so that was one of the things that he talked to me about when when we spoke was about how you know his uh, his aunt had kind of blurted all this out and, and how Hafner, never, his his cousin didn't deny anything and then spent the next next few weeks trying to persuade him that he hadn't heard what he thought, what he knew he had heard. Yeah. And Chris was 15 at the time, uh, and, and, you know, and he didn't go to the police, I mean, he didn't know anything, you know, uh, and, and again, he had this complicated relationship with Rick, you know, where sometimes Rick was nice, and then one time, Rick was not so nice.
0: Yeah. Wow. So, so now, and it's exciting here, I see that you've got your book now coming out, or it just came out on audio, didn't it?
2: Yes it did. Uh it's available uh from audible.com, from amazon.com or from uh the Apple uh you know iTunes store as a unabridged an 15 and a half hour uh digital download.
0: That's pretty cool. Uh did you have someone special do the voiceovers?
2: Yes, I uh ACX uh, which is the entity of Amazon that is that produced the or is is put, publishes the you know the audiobook. They have a process where you can uh, you can audition uh, potential narrators, uh, you know, for your book. You know, you just put out a a sample of the book for them to to read as an audition, and and uh, and then you decide based on that. And I got about seven or eight auditions, I think it was, and and uh, the one I liked the best was uh, from Eddie Frierson, who was uh, a veteran Hollywood voice actor. I mean. You know, Eddie has been, you know, you can hear his voice in, you in, know, in Bruce Almighty, uh, in, in Frozen, uh, in Secretariat and, 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 any number of other, uh, you know, movies and, and TV shows. Uh, you never see him, but he, you hear little bits of him, you know, here and there. He's made a, a very good career out of that. And, uh, I really, I really came to, to like his voice. I mean, I never got tired of it. You know, he, he knew how to put, uh, you know, emphasis in the right places and, and, uh, you know, he he knew, the, and and plus he was a total pro. I mean, I never had to worry about him not getting the job done. He knew you know, how to record, how to how to correct recordings, you know, all, all that stuff, and uh, just made my my side of the job a whole lot easier. Yeah, that's
0: pretty cool. That's that's a really really good feature. Um, so, where do you see yourself going now? What's up next for you?
2: Well, I started work on a, a new true crime book. Uh, don't want to get uh, into too many details yet because it's not under contract as as I speak. But uh, it's um, it's about a um, a man who was imprisoned in Pennsylvania for 24 years for the arson murder of his his daughter, uh, and his conviction was pretty much based on what's now considered to be junk science uh, on you know in, in the arson uh, investigation community. Uh, and uh, but it still it took that long, and they knew this early on, but it still took him all that time you know, to get him out of prison. It's a it's a great legal thriller. It's a great um, story of human perseverance and faith, uh, and I think it's going to make another great book.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Uh, you know what? Do you have an overall opinion, like a newer opinion? Has it changed since doing the book and the research as before on how policing and the whole system is working well I mean I'm not trying to put you the spot but I mean we just had Diane yeah. Fanning on and I know she's done a lot of cases and uh, it seems to be a lot of um, you know uh, and I'm not picking on police uh, but there and judges and all that but there seems to be a lot of um, I don't know uh, things that happen wrong and then the follow-up doesn't seem to be very uh, swift at if at all
2: yeah the I think back certainly in the, in the late 1960s, uh, when the Arzma murder occurred and, and, uh, and in the early, even into the early 1990s when the, you know, the current murder I'm, I'm interested in occurred, um, policing was not as good as it is, is today. I mean, they did not have DNA evidence, uh, to work with, uh, and they were often not that well equipped to do, uh, forensic investigation, uh, and, I mean, there's a great story in, in, you know, the Betsy Arzma book about how they brought in this, this little old uh, lady uh, chemistry professor from Penn State to do their forensic work because they knew she was really good and, and their guys were not so good. So, uh, you know, there's, it's just policing, I think, in general, has gotten a whole lot better, especially on the scientific and technical end. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, and how do people get a hold of you?
2: Well, uh, they can uh, find my website uh, daviddecook.com. That's uh, v a v i v v e k o k dot com. Um, my email address is d uh, decook at verizon.net, and uh, you know that's that's probably the the best way. And you know my book, uh, the book can be purchased uh, anywhere you can find books. I mean, certainly amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, or or any any good online source would have it right away. Or you, or you could get your local independent bookstore to order it in for you. Do you plan on doing
0: any um, book signings or any, are you doing anything coming up? I don't have
2: anything scheduled right now. Uh, not until uh, probably the spring, but, uh, and that's actually for my, my Centralia book, not for this one, but uh, uh, so no, nothing, nothing right now. Uh, always open to the idea, but, uh, but no. Yeah.
0: Well, great. Well, um, thank you very much for taking some time to um, just get to know us and talk Talk about your your book and uh, kind of what you're doing.
2: You're welcome. I'm uh, really happy to be able to talk to you. The
0: mission has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. How do you? This has been a production of the Z
1: Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me.
0: Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows,
2: go to www.yahoofinance.com.